Stories Behind the White Coat. This is Grayscale. I'm Ben Davis. I'm really excited to introduce Kaylee Kaplan today, second year resident at First Hill Family Medicine Residency. Rumor has it her special skill is being able to climb a light pole all by herself. I'll believe it when I see it. And as always, names and certain details are changed to protect the identity of our patients. So halfway through intern year, I was on the FMS service. That stands for Family Medicine Service. It's our inpatient service where we take care of a wide variety of patients. Some of them are little kids, babies. Some of them, many of them are older, sicker. And I met a lot of different patients last year, many of whom had cancer, um, new diagnoses, old diagnoses. And For me, these patients have stood out a little bit more than others have. So I want to tell a story about one of them. It's somebody who I still think about from time to time, and um, the way that her story progressed influences how I think about oncology cases and um, and also sort of of end-of-life cases. This is a 68-year-old woman. Um, She was named Kumiko. And she was admitted to the hospital with bad shortness of breath, low oxygen saturations. She really looked pretty terrible. And it wasn't her first time in the hospital. In fact, she has had lung cancer for many years, um, two years, three years. And she had been through all of the different treatments. So multiple rounds of chemotherapy, uh, several surgeries, and radiation, and was, I think, towards the end of her life, and yet still living at home with her daughter, doing pretty well, hoping that things would sort of continue on as they were. So when she was admitted, um, she, because she looked pretty bad, she was just in really bad respiratory distress, breathing fast, she was sweaty, she looked uncomfortable because of how hard she was having to breathe. They put her on what's called high flow, high flow nasal cannula. So that is, if you've ever seen it, it's kind of funny. It's these little prongs that go up in your nose. And it's different from the typical nasal cannula that you would see either on TV or if somebody goes to the emergency room, they need just a little bit of oxygen um, because the high flow is like these tube kind of things that go up your nose and they push a bunch of oxygen at a really high flow rate into into your nasal passages. And she was requiring that from right off the bat, which is a bad sign, typically. Um, so that helped, though, and she perked up a little bit. She started to feel better. Her breathing eased, and we admitted her to the hospital, and she was okay. But we obtained further imaging, so we looked at her lungs on a chest x-ray, and sure enough, her cancer was worse than it had been, and this was pretty unfortunate because she'd had a relatively recent second or third line chemotherapy treatment, and the fact that things had progressed and that she had more white on the chest x-ray as opposed to black, which is what you want, meant that 
things were not going well. And it was relatively easy for us as the providers on the medical team to, I think, understand that she was probably a lot closer to the end of her life than maybe she realized, and and certainly closer to the end of her life than her daughter Jess realized. Um, Her daughter was with her every minute of the day. Um, And I haven't seen that many people be so dedicated, but she even like transformed the hospital room into this really like kind of cozy little room. It was so jammed with like, I don't know, pillows and things and that you, you could sit on and I don't know, it was, it was comfortable, which is a lot <laughs> to say about a hospital room. Usually they're pretty stark. And she made all of her mom's meals. Um, she made Japanese food and she brought it in so that her mom didn't have to eat the hospital food, which isn't that bad, but really nice of her. And so they were, they were sort of a unit. So when I went to see them every morning to check in and do my physical exam and talk about the plan for the day, I was communicating with both of them. And um, they both were very clearly hoping that this was just going to be a short hospital stay and that Kamiko was going to get better and sort of go back to the way things were. And being a young doctor, just like six months into even being a doctor, I was relatively tentative, hesitant um, to really sort of speak my mind about what I thought was going to be happening. And, and so I, I was not a confident prognosticator, if you will, which is okay. I'm not an oncologist. I'm not a pulmonologist. I can't look at a chest x-ray and predict whether or not this woman's going to get a lot worse in a week or a lot worse in a month. I don't know. What I knew was that she was on high-flow nasal cannula, which is a big deal, and that can often move pretty quickly, especially if somebody gets an infection on top of it, to needing more aggressive therapy, such as being moved to the IMCU or the ICU for more care or even intubation. Kamiko was doing okay, and I got in touch with the oncologist. She had an outpatient oncologist who she knew really quite well and had been caring for her for many years. And I said, hey, look, she's here. What's going on? You know, what's going on with her chemotherapy? Um, what are our next steps? And I was had read through all the notes, and so I sort of assumed, like, that things would be sort of wrapping up for her, that she's done all of the chemotherapy she can do. We are not going to offer more. Um, She's 68, but she looks like she's 78. She's frail. She's never had a chance to recover fully in between bouts of chemotherapy. And gosh, she has really bad cancer. So that's a terrible disease in itself. And the oncologist was, you know, surprisingly optimistic. Um, Talked to him on the phone initially, and he We had short little brief conversations that didn't, I think, initially give me a full sense of what his thought process was. But he said, oh, hey, well, I'm sorry she's in the hospital, but why don't we do a bronchoscopy? Uh, Bronchoscopy is when you you look down into the lungs, essentially, and then you take a biopsy by going down into the trachea, looking into the lungs, and then you can find a, a piece of tissue or a piece of tumor that you need to grab, take a little piece of it, and send it off to the lab for analysis. He said, why don't we do a bronchoscopy and we'll send it off and we'll look for this specific mutation. And I'm like, what, what mutation? What are you talking about? 
And he said, this, this mutation, if she's positive for it, there's a brand new FDA approved drug that we can use um, specifically for lung cancer and, and it might help. And we talked about it as a team. Um, when I say team, I mean the residents and the attendings on the family medicine service. And we said, okay, yeah, I mean, it sounds reasonable. Let's see if they want to do the bronchoscopy. And unsurprisingly, when we presented this to Kamiko and Jess, they said, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Chance at another therapy, chance at something that is going to help me feel better. Sure, let's go for it. Um, And so they did it. And they did the bronchoscopy probably just the very next day and sent the sample off to the lab. Meanwhile, we had to wait. And testing these things takes a long time. And waiting is pretty painful when you're watching somebody who's already really sick getting sicker and sicker. And Kumiko started to get sicker. Over the next few days, she was needing more of the high flow. She was spending more time in bed and really no time getting up and walking around, which she used to be able to do pretty easily. And she was feeling short of breath and she was coughing. God, she had this awful cough. We just couldn't treat it either. We'd give her these little pills called Tessalon Pearls. I don't even know if they actually work, but we (laughs) gave them to her. There's really not a whole lot to do for somebody with a bad chronic cough like this. I love Tessalon Pearls. Do you? (laughs) Do you give them out to everyone? Do they work? Not everyone. I don't think they work. I don't think they work. (laughs) It's it's a good placebo effect. It's like a magic pill, except it's not doing anything. (laughs) Um, They're terrible. But, you know, we, we tried to support her symptomatically as best we could and um, Jess, of course, was being just an amazing um, support person and caretaker and was coming in with her excellent meals. And Jess was frustrated that her mom wasn't eating more. And she was really focused on that. Why isn't she eating more? Why won't she eat this? And she just she just can't. I mean, she's so tired and sick. And a lot of people who have bad sort of end-stage cancer like that just don't have an appetite. Um, or even if they do, they can't keep weight on. And so Kumiko was losing weight as well. And she wasn't at all comfortable, but she stayed on our service, um, waiting like we all were for those results for a really long time. And about a week went by and a week is a long time to wait for a test. Not totally out of the ordinary, but that's when you start making phone calls. So I call the lab. We call the bronchoscopy people. Hey, yeah, remember this patient? Remember this sample? We're waiting for it. We're expecting it. We need it to come back. We're really waiting for it. Because if this is positive, she gets a treatment. They said, yeah, oh, we'll look into it. We'll look into it. I'm not sure where it is. I'm not sure where it is. So in the midst of watching Kamiko get sicker and get sicker, we didn't even know where the sample was. And we had to go up and tell the, the patient that and, and tell Kamiko and tell Jess, we're still waiting. And to be honest, we actually don't even know where the sample went. And we can't promise you that it's going to come back because it's lost and we don't know where it is. So that was one thing that felt bad. 
very bad. But over the next few days, we actually did find, they had found it. They were running it. It was going to take a few more days. And so again, we're just waiting. We're just waiting. And in the meantime, Kamiko is still getting worse, um, dwindling. And then she ends up reaching the point where the high-flow nasal cannula is not doing it anymore. It's just not enough for her to be able to oxygenate and ventilate her lungs. And so she had to go on what's called BiPAP, um, which is sort of like CPAP. So, except it's BiPAP, which is a really excellent explanation. That's what I tell people (laughs) when they're going on BiPAP. I tell them it's like CPAP, but it's not CPAP, it's BiPAP. And then they absolutely Uh, understand what I mean. Yes, yes. Yeah, so the the PAP part is positive airway pressure. Um, It's essentially going to push some air into your lungs, and it's also going to provide a little bit of pressure um, as everything is coming back out. And so it is a way to support people's breathing when they are having a really hard time with it. And it's the next step before putting an actual tube down somebody's throat to put them on a ventilator. So she had to be transferred to the IMCU not quite the ICU, and she was on BiPAP, and and she was looking really pretty terrible when she was on BiPAP. And at this point, we've been waiting for many, many days to even get this result back. And the team was frustrated. Kamiko and her daughter, we were frustrated. We called over to her oncologist, who had been helping us try to track down this sample, And we called him and gave him this update saying, look, she's looking a lot worse. I don't know if she's going to be able to live in time for us to realistically get her the chemotherapy, let alone have the time to wait and see if it's even going to have an effect. And so he came over to talk to the patient and talk to me that evening. And I remember exactly where I was in the IMCU when I talked to him. Because after talking with him, I was so excited. He told me that this chemotherapy was going to melt away her tumors. And he was incredibly positive and just ready to go. He, first of all, he was pretty dang sure that she was going to have that mutation. And second of all, once we gave her that medicine, he thought that within 24 hours, she would have an improvement. And I said, oh my God, that sounds amazing. Yeah, great. Let's do it. Let's, we got to keep plugging away. We have to keep waiting. We have to keep our hopes up because this sounds incredible. And he told me about his previous experience with this chemotherapy, which was just one patient because it was a brand new medicine. And it was somebody similar who was really close to dying and received the medicine, and within 24 hours, 48 hours, was dramatically improved and eventually was sort of discharged back home. It was sort of a Cinderella story of getting chemotherapy and beating cancer, at least in the short term. And I wanted to believe him, and so I totally did. And I remember feeling so elated by that news. And I went back and told the team, I said, I just talked to the oncologist and this medicine is going to be amazing. I know she's suffering right now, but we just have to hold out for it. It's going to be really pretty great. And the patient wants to keep waiting for it. And her daughter wants to keep waiting for it. So we're going to, we're going to wait. 
And I say wait in part because we we were waiting, but also because there were other things that we could have been doing in that time frame, in that long, multiple, multiple days where she was suffering because of her breathing um, that we weren't doing because we were waiting for chemotherapy. So one um, really common way to treat the suffering and anxiety related to shortness of breath is to give people morphine. However, that's not something that you can do to somebody who has really bad lung disease um, without expecting that it might potentially hasten their death. And so for someone who is seeking all curative treatments like she was, we actually didn't have a great way of treating her symptoms. Um, she just sort of had to continue to tough it out. And we had talked with them about that and said, look, there are other ways um, of helping you through this. And one way would be to just say, if you want to, that you're done with this therapy. Um, you're done with chemotherapy and you want to move on to the next stage, which is comfort. And comfort-based care would include care that can make your suffering a lot better. Um, but she, she hadn't wanted to do that yet, and that was fine. We were willing to wait for her. And so again, we wait two or three more days, and every day I would talk to the oncologist, and um, every time I was starting to feel really worried about her and, and scared for her and wondering about whether or not we were doing the right thing because she was still continuing to suffer, he would say something about how great this was going to be, reminding me like about this magical chemotherapy. And so... Finally, we got the mutation analysis back, and this was about after two weeks. Sort of incredible how long it took, and it was positive. So she tested positive, which meant that this medicine was actually going to work, maybe, in theory. And so she got her first dose of chemotherapy not long after. And I talked with the oncologist, and actually I met with him in the hallway outside her room in the IMCU when we got the news that the mutation analysis was positive. And he and I did this like funny little like happy dance together. <laughs> and he was so excited about it too. And he said, okay, okay, I'm just going to run away right now to the pharmacy. I'm going to go pick it up myself. I'm going to sign for it myself. I'm going to bring it right back over. And he did. He like ran, just ran down the hall and he ran out of the hospital. He ran over to the oncology pharmacy and picked up this drug, which is, I don't remember precisely. I mean, it was in the multiple thousands of dollars per pill, but he got, he got the drug. It was probably $10,000 a, a dose or something crazy like that. And he brings it back and we gave her the first dose. And, um, and I watched her swallow that chemotherapy and I was so excited for her to take that medicine. I've never been excited for anybody to take medicine before, unless it's like myself and I need some Advil and I'm like happy about it because I'm going to feel better. But for her, it was like, yes, this is going to make you feel better. And this is going to melt those tumors. And then we waited another day, two days. Um, and she didn't get better, in fact. In fact, she got a lot worse. And over the next couple of days, she had a pretty quick decline. Um, and she ended up dying um, two, maybe three days after that first dose of chemotherapy. I wasn't there, which 
I regret, but I think it was one of my rare days off. And I remember coming back into the hospital and getting the news. And I, and I wasn't surprised, I guess. I was sad. I was let down. I think deep down I knew that she probably wasn't going to get any better despite this like magical chemo drug and wanting to believe so much that it was going to do everything for her. And, and that was that. And I didn't see the oncologist again for a long time. I didn't, I didn't have a chance to, to talk with him about it afterwards. Um, and this case brings up a lot of different questions for me. And I always wonder, just in a very general overall sense, like, did we do the right thing? And I mean we as just everyone, the collective medical team. Was that right for her to be in the hospital for two weeks and die in the hospital and die feeling short of breath and without good management of some of her symptoms because we were all waiting for a miracle? And when do you... When do you draw the line? When do you say, you know what, this probably isn't going to work, even though it is a good medicine, even though the FDA trials look really great and every once in a while somebody's tumors melt away? When is too much hope and optimism too much? I don't know. You kind of alluded to it right there. Like all throughout your story, I hear two themes. And one, as you mentioned, is hope which can be a very powerful thing, right? There are certain cultures, especially in East Asia, where you don't tell an elder a bad diagnosis, and that's not necessarily hope, but that's kind of avoiding something bad. And there's, you know, anecdotal evidence that some of these people go on to live for a long time without getting that really grave diagnosis. But on the flip side, one of the most dangerous things in medicine that we can do is give the wrong expectation. How do you balance the expectations, which can be very dangerous, but also with hope that can be very powerful. Yeah. I've been talking with several people about this lately. I'm, I'm still having a hard time figuring out where I'm going to come down on this and it'll probably end up just being, you know, patient by patient because I don't think it would have been appropriate for our team to step in and say, We think the oncologist is overdoing it by offering this medicine, and we really don't want you to get the bronchoscopy and take it. We, we, you know, we're, it would be incredibly paternalistic of us to just say, oh, you need to go on comfort care because clearly you're dying. So that wouldn't have been the right thing either. And therefore, it's how do you find that middle ground? I don't know. We didn't in this case, I don't think. But I also don't know what that would have looked like if we had. Would you feel differently if it was a magic pill and everything got better? Yeah, I would. I, because I, and this was one of my like mistakes that I reflect back on when I think about this case, but I totally bought into the magic pill theory and I was so excited about it too. And, and yeah, I think I still, even if, if things had turned out pretty good for her and we had sent her home and she was feeling better, of course I would have known that this is end-stage cancer and at some point um, she this medicine wouldn't work anymore either, but I would have felt like 
we had won. And I, I don't know, I kind of liken it to like drinking the oncology Kool-Aid, which is like, <laughs> you're really optimistic that this is going to work. And you're so just excited for all of these opportunities to beat back these tumors. It feels like you're winning. I got to kind of hand it to oncology though. You know, their everyday schedule is full of so much death that getting excited for something that's going to give somebody a chance at melting away tumors is a big deal, right? Often the best medications in oncology are ones that can extend people's lives three, six, nine months. But something that can have a drastic effect enough to have an oncologist do a happy dance. I don't blame him for doing that happy dance. No, you're right. And he and I actually talked about that too. He mentioned um, throughout this case that he felt like the types of treatment that, so the same kind of treatment that she was getting, um, were really going to be the things that revolutionized cancer care. Because it's sort of the individualized medicine, right? It's the, we know exactly what your tumor is made of, and so we're going to give you this drug to um, beat it back specifically. And because of that, cancer may become more of just a chronic disease. And so he felt like we were on the cusp of that. And I mean, I think he was right. We're, I was excited about it too. Um, it just, of course, it's not going to work for every patient. And that's what we came down with. What happens next time you have a patient in the hospital and this exact situation comes up? Are you more apt to say go home and be comfortable and we'll do our best for that? Or, hey, let's take this half-court shot and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think it still needs to be so individualized. And I think after this, first, after this happened, I did think initially that I would want to be a little bit more forthright or helpful in explaining what hospice care and comfort care can look like. So I think probably halfway through intern year last year, I wasn't very well versed in explaining that to people. And uh, I'm not sure how much of that fell on me because there's a lot of different people on the medical team helping out with the, these discussions, but um, giving them a really clear understanding of what that can look like, I think is important for your decision-making process. However, people, they have autonomy and they need to be able to decide what they're going to decide. So I can't give this sort of forceful recommendation for comfort care um, when the oncologist is giving like the opposite recommendation. And so I think some of it does speak a little bit to um, communication between different teams. And that is definitely something that we always can work on in medicine. Knowing some of these things, it's like the ins and outs of like how to get work done in the hospital. Um, as an intern halfway through last year, I probably didn't know how to even anticipate how to get in touch with the oncologist and talk about these things and sort of make a plan with them beforehand versus just having them sort of come in in the night and <laughs> make these recommendations without ever having them talk to us. I don't know. You probably know what I mean. It was very vague. Like haunted ghosts <laughs> that come in the night and drop that 9.30 p.m. note. <laughs> they do. They drop really late notes. I'm like, I was in bed. And when you wrote that note and okay, now we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Grayscale is produced by Ben Davis. Special thank you to Kaylee Kaplan for joining me today on the podcast. 
And as always, a big thank you to our patients who continue to enrich our lives through shared experiences. Finally, a big thank you for everyone who helps support this podcast and makes it possible. You know who you are. couple of different stories that had some similar themes, and I ended up choosing the theme of oncology. And this... Wait, no. Okay, I have to go pee. (laughs) 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 We're really tight pants.